This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Hacking is one of the greatest concerns across the board in the United States right now. With all the digital information being sent every minute, hackers are working around the clock to try and get at it. But one area not discussed a great deal are the cables that transmit much of that data, which are located miles under sea level. It's an area that has at least many people within the U.S. Navy concerned. Nicole Staroselsky is an assistant professor of media and culture and communication at NYU. She also authored the book The Undersea Network, which looked at these massive collection of cables that have been under the seas for about 150 years. She joins us on the phone, also here in studio, our friend Bob Meyer, a Wharton a professor and co-director of the Risk Management and Decision Processes Center. Nicole, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Great to have you, Bob. Always good to see you. Yeah, good morning. Thank you. Nicole, I, I mean, as I said, this is these are cables that have been used for various functions for 150 years. And my first question is, is has this always been a, a quote-unquote concern in this realm? Obviously a little bit more now so because of the digital nature of our world. Well, it, it certainly is a, a greater concern now, given the dependency that everyone has on these systems. Uh, but it's always been a concern. As long as people have relied on cable systems for communication, there's been concerns about people cutting them. How many thousands of miles of cable are we talking about here that, that crisscrosses the globe? Probably about half a billion miles of cable right now, around, give and, or take. And, and the value of that to, to the economy each and every day is ballpark... Uh, I couldn't even give you a value. I mean, it's uh, these systems underpin so many, you know, so many different industries. Um, they have, I mean, they've done some estimates, right? Uh, various estimates that I've pulled up. I think uh, in if you disrupted all of uh, Korea's cable landing stations, the economic cost of disruption would be over a billion dollars. In Australia, this would be over three billion dollars. Uh, but it's different, difficult to calculate. The interesting thing, I guess, is is the fact that for the longest time, for people that you know realize that these cables are out there, they normally associated them with the with the telecom industry. Uh, but that has kind of shifted, obviously, now that we're in this digital world, and it's really the Googles and uh, the the other tech companies out there that really have the biggest concern of of these right now. Right, and they've started to lay their own lines too. So we've seen Google laying undersea cables. So it's not just an expansion. Uh, you know, telecoms, our phone service depend on cable systems. But, uh, you know, the Internet uh, traverses these networks every day. Um, and a lot of these big Internet companies are very invested, uh, both because they rely on it and because now they are uh, investing in these systems. Bob, when you hear the, this, this story pop up, and, and when I heard this the other day, it, it kind of caught me off guard. What about you? <laughs> Uh, yes, I, I think so. I, I think most people, uh, certainly people who don't really know a lot about the topic, just somehow or another figure, you know, wh- where does the Internet come from? Yeah. And they figure it's some satellites, it's some wires places, well, it's just out in uh, broadcast. In Everybody's the cloud. In the yeah, cloud. it's the cloud, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, how would you, you know, end the cloud? Well, right. uh, that, that sort of a thing. So I think to, 
to to know that like over ninety percent of um, of traffic is basically being driven through uh, undersea cables uh, is I think would be an enormous shock to people. But I guess uh, Nicole, obviously, when you're talking about a, a lot of segments of the business community, maybe it's not a surprise when you're talking about wire transfers and banking and and all kinds of different business. It it maybe isn't as big a surprise. Uh, likely not. I mean, it depends. Uh, you'd be surprised how many people and how many industries and sections of the government still don't know exactly how communications are sent. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I'm surprised all the time. And people in the cable industry, when I talk to them, they have to make this argument constantly yeah. um, to people at the highest levels. Cables are important. They carry all of the information traffic across the oceans. As I mentioned, as I mentioned, you did this uh, book, The Undersea Network. What was the really the, the the basis for getting started at look and looking at these, you know, massive, uh, you know, uh, path of, of cables that are all over the world right now? Well, originally, when I had uh, when I was starting, it was started as a dissertation project, and so I was you know searching around trying to find a topic that would be interesting. And uh, my advisor had worked on satellite systems, and she said, oh, you should look at undersea cables. And I thought, oh, those are really boring and old, right? <laughs> Having, you know, knowing that telegraph cables extended under the ocean 150 years ago and thinking we've kind of gone past that now, right? Which I think is most people's opinion. And sure. even in the field of communication studies, you don't hear much about these systems. So when I discovered they carried, you know, almost 100% of transoceanic Internet traffic, and yet so many people didn't know about this. Um, I decided to do a project on it and write a book about it. We're talking with uh, Nicole Starosilski, who's an assistant professor at NYU, and also with uh, Wharton's Bob Meyer. I mean, these are cables, Bob, that that obviously are affected in one way or another quite often, uh, whether it is... You know, storms that, that pop up, whether it is one of the a lot of the articles have talked about anchors uh, being an effect on this, the animals that are that are living under yeah, the sharks. sea. sharks. Yeah. Yeah. So these are cables that are used to having some breaks uh, over the course of the uh, over the course of time. Yet it, it, we know we don't see major disruptions in terms of our, our operations for the most part. Yeah, right. I, I think that that uh, one of the things that sort of hit the news lately is sort of the worry that well, what happens if there's a systematic attempt to go through and on a large scale. Um, uh, uh, you know, break the cables uh, at a place in a part in the ocean, which would be very, very difficult to remedy. And and then in that case, if suddenly if we have ninety uh, percent of internet traffic and financial transactions are suddenly terminated, uh, we have major, major problems. And I think that's a risk which uh, which is sort of out there. You know, what's the likelihood of that? That's very difficult to know, but uh, it's it's a risk which is out there. Well, and, and then now you have uh, members of the United States Navy that are obviously concerned because of all the hacking incidents we've seen uh, come up. And I get the feeling that, you know, we're, we're heading back to the Cold War. And maybe in some respects, Vladimir Putin would like to take us back there. But it does get that feel right now. Right now, now whether or not uh, Russia would would would, would want to do that, I, it's not really clear. I, it's sort of the analogy is uh, if you're kind of sitting out on a limb, would you want to cut off the uh, uh, the branch? And and I think that that would be the 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 the, the issue there that that it would not necessarily be Russia because they're very much uh, u- utilizing this communication system as well. Uh, I, I think that the worry would be. Uh, uh, some external terrorist agents who just basically for the same, uh, for, for, for the pure aim of just destruction and world mm-hmm. and uh, would would go ahead and commit something like that. So then, Nicole, would Russia, would they gain anything from this? Because seemingly from what Bob's saying, they would not. Yeah, I'm not sure that the, you know, I'm not really sure what the gain would be. 
uh, because on one hand, it's not that the cables are difficult to repair. I mean, that's, uh, there are cable repairs in the deep ocean all of the time. So that's not something uh, that is, you know, any harder uh, for cable ships or cable companies to do. What, but it's much more expensive. I mean, these can cost a million dollars to go repair a cable. And it can take a lot of time just because you have to take a ship out to the center of the ocean um, if you, you know, uh, are quite some distance out there. Um, and in some places, actually, it's even more difficult in the coastal seas because countries like Indonesia have requirements about, you know, the kind of ship or the flag that it's sailing and you have to have a certain number of workers on it. You know, like there are certain kinds of restrictions and permits that are required. So that can cause even more of a delay than just, you know, launching a boat immediately. You, you talked about, obviously, when you're in, in the middle of the ocean, uh, having to send a ship out uh, to, to go do the repairs. How do, I, do they How do they go down and do that? Are they send small unmanned sub or small manned subs down to go get these things? No, actually, I mean, it's much more, it's, it really is an old technology in many senses. They uh, essentially kind of drag a grapnel on the bottom of the ocean or drag something on the bottom of the ocean that will hook the cable and uh, break it, right? And it'll, if it's already broken, it'll draw it up to the surface mm -hmm. where they'll buoy it, and then they'll go grab the other one, they'll buoy that end, and then they'll <laughs> splice it together on the surface. Um, and that's, I mean, that's what they've been doing for, for a long time. God, that that does seem. I mean, I, I'm expecting Fred Flintstone to be yeah. able to go do yeah. do something like that. <laughs> it, it, that's that's amazing that it's it's such an old system, yet it's still such a very important part of of what we have to deal with, Bob. Yeah, ab absolutely. Yeah, I, I think it, uh, what's what's also the, the case is that it does seem to be so, so sort of easy to be disruptive. Uh, yeah. And uh, and if you go ahead and you ask sort of companies, you know, what well, what are they think of sort of the major threats? Um, uh, uh, there was recently a study done uh, last year, the World Economic Forum, who we work with, um, uh, did, did a, a study of 900 uh, business leaders and academics in which they thought of what, what sort of impacts or sort of threats would have the biggest impact. And surprisingly, uh, cyber attacks was like number 10 on the list. And, and hmm. likewise, uh, when they looked at, asked them, right, what, which impacts, which attacks would have the greatest impact, uh, cyber attacks don't even make the top 10. And so, mm. uh, so, so I think a lot of that comes from the fact that, that I think there is this inherent belief that there's profound redundancy in our system such yeah. that any one attack would be, would be easily overcome by, uh, by backup systems. And that, so the mere knowledge that we've got these wires going underneath the ocean that one can go clip and you have this arcane, seemingly arcane technology, I think would be a wake-up call for, for a lot. But it does also say go to some of the cases where there have been breaks that, that have caused issues. Uh, in that there that you have been able to reroute traffic through other cables to basically bypass the problem. So it, you know we do have we do have that that in place, which obviously helps the process. Oh, right. I, I think that one of the concerns, though, is that, that the cables do tend to come apart, and Nicole certainly be the, uh, uh, can in, inform us about this, but uh, my understanding is that, that, that they all kind of come together at a very small number of landing places in the U.S., and so in some sense, it's very possible to essentially do uh, a large-scale termination of a lot of these cables. Nicole? Uh, oh. Yeah, I mean, so, the, so on one hand, uh, it's true there is redundancy in the system. So that way we can have cable breaks, something like, you know, one every three days, or, you know, the estimates vary. Um, I don't have the exact statistics on that. But they're fairly regular, and traffic often gets rerouted. Um, so on one hand, you say we, we sort of have a redundant system because these cables are breaking, and we're not noticing it. We're not feeling a lot of the effects. But then there are actually quite a few moments when 
you know, cables are broken in the right place at the right time because mm-hmm. they do clump in these kind of pressure points, right? So uh, right around Egypt, Alexandria is one, the Luzon Strait uh, between Taiwan and the Philippines, uh, 2006 earthquake cut a lot of cables there. There aren't very many other ways that the cables can be routed. And then, you know, in the U.S., okay, so we have, say, about 50 systems or something like that, uh, or 50 cables uh, coming in. Uh, but they're in roughly like 20 or so zones, right? So they're not evenly distributed across mm-hmm. the coast. They're clumped together, right? So when you look at that, the fact that the overall network, uh, you know, if you cut any one cable, usually if it's not, you know, uh, a country sole cable, which certainly there are countries which rely on a single cable, mm-hmm. um, then often you can reroute on another cable because they're not all full, but if you cut the cables at the right place, then because there are all these pressure points, because we keep laying cables to the, along the same routes, essentially, yeah. you know, many of these routes date back, you know, 100 years. So where are, in terms of the United States, then, where are the, the entry points for those cables coming in? So if you look on, uh, there's some really great maps on telegeography, which have been circulated. Um, and you can see there that... Okay, so a lot comes in around New York. doesn't come directly into New York City, but it comes in in Long Island and New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it comes in in Miami, um, out and around Miami. But in between that, you don't see any cable landings. And on the West Coast, you've got a couple cables coming into L.A., yeah. um, a bunch in kind of central California, uh, a few north of, uh, north of San Francisco, and then in Oregon, kind of outside Portland. Um, these are the kind of major, there's also a, a couple others, um, but these are the major landing points. Um, and if you, you can see this on any of these maps, right? and it just is economically, it's more economically viable to go to an existing cable station. You don't have to build a new cable station. You get to interconnect with all the other networks. Yeah. If you're thinking about high frequency trading, it's, you know, we keep laying now along the lowest latency, most direct route. So... These are forces of concentration that, you know, make it more viable for cable companies to just lay to the same stations. There's not an economic incentive right. to diversify the network. Who's going to provide that incentive? Well, then, then let me ask you this, because if you have a, a, a good amount of these in the New York, New Jersey area, was there any effect from Superstorm Sandy a couple of years ago? Because obviously that was as, as big a storm as, as we've seen in, in, you know, a long, long time here in, in, on the eastern seaboard. Right. Well, I don't think the effect there was so much with the uh, the cable networks. Uh, the cable stations were sort of outside. I mean, these are fairly secure facilities. Um, if you saw a storm with, uh, there are a number of cable stations that are in uh, bunkers or sort of underground. Mm-hmm. Um, if you saw a, a storm like this near one of those on a coast, then yes, you know, the flooding would certainly affect those cable stations. You know, a lot of the problems in New York were that the power went out, right? Uh, so that was, you know, in, uh, you know, that, that then affected those cable systems, or not the cable systems, but the Internet infrastructure that relied on the grid um, or who kept their generators in the basement. But most of these stations have backup generators. So if the power goes out or the grid goes out, that's not going to be a problem. We're talking with uh, Bob Meyer, who's a Wharton professor, uh, and also Nicole uh, Starosilski, who is with uh, NYU, an assistant professor there. So, uh, Bob, w- with these stories coming out about these concerns over the cables, that then 
obviously there is a concern there because of the amount of traffic and obviously the, the types of traffic that are being transmitted on on these wires. But is this concern valid, at least in this case, where and maybe part of this is obviously politics and, and how the relationship between the United States and Russia is right now. Is that being played up a little, maybe even a little bit more than probably it normally would? Uh, well, I, in my book, kind of yes and no. I, I, I mean, certainly like when if you uh, going back to the, you know, what, what are the World Economic Forum, say, say companies are most concerned about. And, and the number one issue right now is concerns about uh, conflict between states and state unrest and so <laughs> forth. And, and so in some degree, you all of a sudden have uh, a, a topic which was sort of off the grid for a while now becomes sort of mainstream, and mm-hmm. now there's all of a sudden you know worries about going to the Cold War and envisioning uh, you know what, what what is it that Russia is doing down there, and and it, it may well be that the concern is actually not necessarily that the cables would be cut, the, the complete termination of communication, but rather that uh, what, what, where the I think the greatest threat would lie would be tapping into the information that's flowing through them. Yeah. Uh, so in, in some these things tend to be uh, operated by large network management, remote software, which manages the, the, the uh, information flow through those. So if a, a terrorist was to get a hold of the management system and and take the information that's through there so they would get access to the uh, financial information which is flowing, I think that would be a, a much scarier uh, and, and more difficult thing to control than simply cutting the cables, where, as Nicole said, we just, you know, we might send a ship out and splice it back together again. <laughs> yeah. And Nicole, though, how difficult or easy would it be to, to basically to tap into these wires, especially when you're talking about them being, you know, a mile, mile and a half down underneath the ocean. Yeah, I mean, it would be pretty difficult. It wouldn't be an easy endeavor. It's much more easy. uh, It would be much more easy to tap into data traffic at cable landing stations. And we saw this with, you know, uh, the NSA and the GCHQ, right? Like that, uh, you know, the Snowden leaks made us all aware that there was tapping going on. But Mm -hmm. that occurs in a station where they're already... Uh, basically, you know, taking that information, that massive amount of information, these cables are like the size of a garden hose. And so you have, you know, an entire country could depend on or could, you know, make a phone call at the same time through one of these cables. So to be able to to sort out the financial information and to to capture it all and, you know, like we have, uh, I think that'd be very difficult to do miles down in the depths of the ocean. It, what, yeah, I would think. Uh, give us examples of cases where we have seen breaches of these lines, and and obviously there has been a a rather significant effect more than more than the normal break, which I read about quite a bit. Where I guess these lines can break. What you know, the average is I guess every three days you you find a break somewhere along the line. Right, and so okay, so I had mentioned earlier the uh, 2006 Hengchun earthquake that basically uh, severed uh, a bunch of cables. I think nine of the eleven cables that ran through the Luzon Strait. Um, And you can't really go between Taiwan and China for political reasons. You can't really go south of the Philippines, uh, though you can try. Um, And this was severed by an earthquake that then triggered an undersea landslide and basically kind of took out these cables. Um, it took uh, 11 different cable ships a total of 49 days to repair. Um, and according to one study, uh, you know, 98% of Taiwan's communications within the region uh, was severed at this point, and much of the communications in the area more broadly was disrupt- disrupted. Um, so that's one incident, right? Because there was a, uh, a set of breaks, more than one, in a region, and took out a vast amount of communications. 
Um, but then we see a kind of a, a, a counter to that in Japan post Fukushima. That took out a lot of cables, um, but we didn't see the same kind of impact because mm-hmm. there are cables laid all around Japan. There's a, a more diverse network there. It's not a pressure point in the same way. So we didn't see the same kinds of effects that we saw um, with the Hengchun earthquake. I, I was going to say with that one, though, with, with it being 49 days, I would imagine that not only did you have the disruption, a significant one to communication, but obviously you, you probably had a fairly significant uh, disruption to business uh, from that region of the world as well. Oh, definitely. Yes, that's that's exactly true. So. With it, it, I have to go back to the fact that we, you know, these cables have been down underneath the ocean for 150 years, and obviously they've been updated as as we've gone along. But the fact that you know we have come so far, and we talked about Bob about the cloud, and you know how we seem to be floating every everything now towards the cloud. Obviously, that's a little bit of a myth at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, one always has to wonder that I, I think that there's a tendency to where we you know where where we put most of our energy in terms of worrying about uh, what is the, what kinds of um, investments we're going to make in protecting different sorts of systems. Uh, a lot of it depends upon what's the most the kind of failures that are most easy to imagine. And mm-hmm. I think that uh, for a lot of people, to the degree to which you think that the internet is in the cloud and it's just sort of surrounding us in some way, that the idea that it in fact is that vulnerable um, uh, to major disruptions. And and even though uh, Nicole said, well, in, you know, in theory, you could get some ships out there and and uh, and you know, in, in due course, uh, uh, you know, repair the things. That mm-hmm. sort of how, how people's lives would be disrupted by a uh, let's say even let's say a, a five or six day shutdown of all financial uh, transactions, of all internet and so forth. I think would be have a profound impact. And and certainly, what would happen in that case is that there would be a lot of people yelling, uh, uh, you know, heads will roll as to why you know why sure. weren't steps taken to 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 uh, to to mitigate this well it would seem that that and obviously when you're talking about the the, the entry points for the United States uh, New York is probably right at the top because of all the the, the financial industry business that that probably moves in and out of that area but I would think that pretty much any point in the United States would have a wide a large amount of data that would be very important to a wide range of people that would bring that same type of reaction. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, as I said, I think if this was to happen, it's one of these, it's one of these, a number of risks that are sitting out there that have very, very large impact that people just don't particularly think about. Uh, and and the, the hope is, is that uh, that we don't have to worry about it. And the hope, because certainly if it does happen, then there, in fact, as I said, there would be people screaming, "Well, why wasn't anyone thinking about this before? And uh, and why did this happen?" Is so. there a way to mitigate that risk? Do you think? I mean, I mean, it's when you're talking about something that's been under the water for 150 years, I don't. And I don't think you can easily switch it. Yeah, well, I'm sure Nicole could speak to this, but I, I think it's just a cost-benefit um, uh, that certainly we could have ships that are sitting out there patrolling the oceans and and uh, and, and anything that gets near these cables, uh, uh, you know, to intercept them and so forth. But at some point, you know, one has to trade off the the risk, uh, the, the the risk versus the benefits of, of the cost versus benefits of doing this. And and I think at this point, it's just not seemed to be maybe uh, that likely a, 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 an event. Event. And maybe that's that's uh, uh, misguided optimism. Nicole? <laughs> well, I would say, I mean, I think it would be really difficult to have ships patrolling the cables because sure. the cables can be broken by any boat that basically drops an anchor on them. Right. It's, yeah. it's that, and that's that's the biggest threat. I mean, the biggest threat is not intentional disruption. 
the biggest threat are these sort of regular, unintentional um, breaks. And so to think about having ships patrolling the half a billion miles um, from any kind of ship, right? Fishermen, regular boaters, right? Like, uh, that would be an enormous cost. Um, (laughs) You'd have to have have hundreds of ships doing this around the clock, 365 days a year. Right. And it's not, I mean, I think the much more viable option is to actually build a more geographically diverse network. And there have been a lot of people before me who have been calling for this and saying that, you know, we need to find ways to make it a little bit easier in terms of the permitting or, you know, uh, financially viable um, for people to lay networks that don't kind of go along these pressure points. I was going to ask you what that would all entail, because I think it would be a situation where you would just have to go ahead and and lay them in a more, you know, uh, random pattern. And then whoever would be using these uh, these uh, these cable runs would basically be have to be assuming part of the cost of them. Right. I mean, so here's I mean, one thing is, is that. In the U.S., obviously, if you cut off the U.S. from the cable networks, um, you know, international traffic would be would be severed, right? Or at least, you know, inter, uh, transoceanic traffic would be severed. Yeah. But a lot of internet infrastructure is here, right? So we're fairly, you know, uh, we're not nearly as, um, you know, subject to these threats as countries who depend almost entirely on undersea cable networks to access the internet, right? Like we have a lot of data centers here. We have a lot of internet exchanges here. A lot of content is based here, right? Yep. So, so if you even were to sever these, granted, it would cause a kind of catastrophic, you know, uh, impact, especially on financial institutions. Um, but there, but it wouldn't necessarily sever us from all networks, right? Sure. Because there's a lot of domestic internet traffic, you know. Um, but that's not true for all countries. Right. So this is a kind of distributed risk um, that really depends on how many cables a given country has, uh, where they're laid and where they're primarily sending their data. Right. Where they're getting their data, uh, where that's housed. So the damage, the damage could be in in some of the smaller countries and the more remote countries that have to rely on one cable for a majority of what they what they get communication wise. Right. Yes. And so if they're say you have people who are depending on this cable to access their email, yeah. right? Um, and they're getting that through Gmail. And, but there aren't any Google servers or anything near, nearby, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of their, say, communications to each other are depending on uh, you know, a company that is primarily trafficking through undersea cables. You cut those cables, you sever communications within that country. Right, yep. Um, whereas if you have a lot of infrastructure in place, like in the U.S., you're not, you cut an undersea cable to another country, you know, you cut off these cable systems, you're not necessarily going to disrupt, you know, my communication to you via this telephone call. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.